Welcome everybody to this meeting organized by Reform and Revolution to hear reports back from the uh, delegation that DSA sent to Cuba to protest against the US blockade, to discuss with uh, people on the ground, officials uh, of the Cuban government, but also then comrades met interesting left-wing oppositional people. I'm excited to have Sarah Hurt here. Uh, Sarah is a member of Paren Rosas and one of the chairs of the National Labor Committee of DSA and was on this trip. And to hear from uh, Maria Franz Blau. Maria Franz Blau is a member of YDSA at Florida International University and Miami DSA. And to Maria is also a member of the steering committee of our caucus, Reform and Revolution, a Marxist caucus in DSA. Before we start, I just want to also acknowledge, I think we are super busy, we were involved in many protests against the war in Gaza, the atrocities committed there, uh, we were protesting obviously against the siege of Gaza, against the occupation in the West Bank, against the apartheid uh, state of Israel, and we demand that there are all the US uh, support and aid for Israel, the occupation is ended immediately. I think a lot of comments uh, were at protests yesterday. If you want to get involved, if you live as myself in the area of Seattle and Tacoma, there is a, a ship, a boat that was blockaded. There was a blockade of the ship in Tacoma. There are more protests today to stop this boat of bringing weapons to Israel. Uh, that's going on. Uh, there is also an exciting ballot initiative in Tacoma where some comments are today who missed this meeting. Um, for renters' rights, a lot of other things. Obviously, we call everyone to get involved. But now we are here to hear from this exciting delegation uh, to Cuba. I mentioned 44 comments went there, a number of comments from the NPC, our national leadership, but it was also a multi-tenancy delegation. So it was a whole variety of views on DSA's international work, how we should approach that was represented there. And I think it will be very interesting to hear uh, from comments about that. The idea is that uh, we give Sarah and uh, Maria a lot of time at the beginning to explain um, what had happened. We've got three questions for them and give them time to respond to that. Um, uh, then we will open up for questions and comments and uh, bring uh, comments back in there. If there are other members on the call, we also offer to other people to report here and give extra time, but also if you after the leadoffs, and uh, answering those questions, the other comments who were on the delegations are on this call want to have extra time, would obviously make space for that and hear other perspectives and views there. So our first question, and I would give it to Maria first and to Sarah, our first question would be, could you describe for us the trip, the situation in Cuba under the US embargo? So seven minutes, I would uh, give you time after five minutes, and then after seven minutes, we would hand it over to Sarah. Maria, if you could kick us off. Yes, I can. Uh, thank you very much for the good uh, intro introduction, Stefan. Uh, yeah, as uh, he already said, uh, I'm Maria. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm a member of Miami DSA, YDSA at FIU, uh, and Reform and Revolution. Um, so uh, Stefan already gave a little bit of background on the delegation. But yes, as many of you know, last week uh, I was in Havana as part of this large multi-tendency uh, DSA delegation, the first official national delegation to Cuba, uh, and its main goal was to be a, 
um, as like the national uh, organization called it, a fact-finding delegation uh, to like assess the conditions on the ground in Cuba, uh, interchange with various Cuban institutions, and to conduct normalized and respectful dialogue with various levels of Cuban society. Uh, and the primary focus of that delegation uh, was on learning about the effects of the U.S. embargo uh, and uh, or also known like in Cuba as like the blockade um, and like learning a bit about like Cuba's socialist project. Uh, I would say, you know, to kind of start with some of the positives that in Cuba, our delegation had the opportunity to see firsthand uh, what gains working people can make when they seize power and resources uh, from the capitalist class. Uh, for instance, we had a chance to see a healthcare system by visiting a local community clinic, uh, as well as a hospital, in which with free universal treatment and doctors ingrained in every small town and neighborhood, while in the richest nation on earth, you know, people can't uh, afford basic care. We saw an education system, having had the chance to visit, uh, you know, a primary school uh, in Havana, uh, an education system which provides a free quality education from primary school uh, to university with a national curriculum without the fragmentation, incoherence, and racial segregation present in the American system. We also saw a religious machista society which had just legalized same-sex marriage and adoption uh, in the 2022 uh, family code in Cuba, and had already secured long ago free abortion and gender affirming care on demand as part of their health care system, while states across the U.S. roll back our most basic rights to bodily autonomy. So I would say that we saw a lot there that, uh, you know, that there is like uh, to be a lot, a lot there to be inspired by, I should say. However, we also saw several uh, economic and political crises in Cuba, some of which I would say were better addressed on the uh, delegation than others. Uh, there's mainly like four, uh, you know, like the first and the biggest one is the worst economic crisis in Cuba's history since the revolution, uh, caused by the tightening of the U.S. embargo under Trump and Biden, the after effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and decreased oil imports from Venezuela. Uh, there's two growing inequalities spurred by the government's increased allowance of private, small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, there's a political crisis in which the government... Uh, which I would describe as being a very like bureaucratic top-down government where independent uh, critical organizing is severely restricted, uh, is growing increasingly unpopular and protests become more common uh, on the island, uh, and that there is fourth like record waves of immigration as young Cubans increasingly don't see a viable future in their home country. If I remember correctly, the statistic is like that like 2% of Cuba's population has left in the past uh, two years. I could, I could, um, I know that the number is correct. I need to check the specific span of years. Um, but now, of course, these crises, particularly that of uh, the political crisis and bureaucracy, uh, you know, needs to be put into context. That is, you know, the context of what it means uh, to defend a socialist revolution in a poor Caribbean nation 90 miles away uh, from the most uh, powerful capitalist empire in the world. Um, but I also think considering all of these uh, is necessary to understanding, uh, you know, the Cuban uh, socialist project or anti-capitalist project or whatever you'd wish to call it. Um, it because uh, in my view, it's important to understand them because I think that the U.S. embargo and these various crises do pose a very big threat uh, to like the potential of the revolution or the survival of the revolution. And, you know, the... Um, and just to the everyday lives and livelihoods uh, of Cubans. Uh, so for instance, I mentioned their advanced healthcare system, which is deeply impressive uh, for their circumstance. 
uh, and even impressive just on its own in its own right. But within that healthcare system, there is also now uh, significant shortages of medicine and you know and basic medicines like antibiotics as a result of the economic crisis and the embargo within the uh, education system. Uh, you know, which we mentioned with uh, you know ha as having like being a very uh, prioritized sector uh, within uh, Cuban society, and you know, with teaching being a very like uh, esteemed job uh, that the government spends significant amount of of money and of its budget on. Even within that context, uh, right now Cuba actually faces a shortage of teachers, uh, and you know, like there's a significant number of uh, teacher shortages. In like the education system, uh, there is shortages of supplies that students need, uh, you know, um, to like, you know, just like do their schoolwork. Uh, and there's also a growth of private tutoring. Uh, formal private schooling is, you know, not allowed in Cuba. It's prohibited, which I think is good. Um, but like there is a growth of like private tutoring and like, you know, private services being offered by either individual people or by churches. Uh, and, you know, that's Again, another way that you know the uh, effects of the embargo has kind of allowed creeping amounts of influence for capital into the country, not a dominant in a dominant form as it is in the United States, uh, but in a way that we should be cognizant of, and that I think is uh, you know uh, dangerous to uh, to you know uh, to their project, um, and like you know uh, just in general in terms of people's like the everyday effects on people's lives, uh, you know there is like just regular shortages of food, medicine, and other basic goods. There's water shortages, uh, issues of regular blackouts. Um, and generally just like, it's increasingly hard to like get by uh, in Cuba. Um, so yeah, I'm see that I'm coming up on time. So I'll end it off here. There's a lot more I wanted to get into on the, uh, you know, political aspect of things, as well as the dynamics in the delegation, but we'll have time to do that in the further questions. So I'll leave it off there. Thanks a lot, Maria. Now, Sarah, please give us your take on the situation in Cuba and under the U.S. embargo. Certainly. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for having me. Uh, I'm Sarah Hurd. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I'm going to try to follow what was, uh, I think, very uh, exhaustive and uh incredibly accurate depiction um, of what we saw during our time in Cuba. Uh, I would just like to kind of drill down on a few of the examples um, that Maria mentioned that I think being able to see some of this stuff in person um, is incredibly important for our understanding because we can see, you know, statistics and statistics all day. Um, but, but witnessing things on the ground is kind of a, I think it was a transformative experience for a lot of the people um, that got to be part of the delegation. Um, one of the things that I kind of wanted to delve into more detail on was um, the school uh, situation, um, because, you know, Maria is correct that there is a teacher shortage, but there were also 15 students in each of the classes that we visited. So their version of a teacher shortage is, oh, no, we're having trouble maintaining our class sizes of 15. Um, and of those people, that's a confusing statement. Should I continue? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, but I think the visiting the school was such an interesting um, example of just what a completely different context I think uh, the Cuban people are operating um, under. And it was true that, you know, the 
resources were limited. They were very grateful to get the, you know, erasers and pencils and basic supplies that we were giving them. Uh, but in terms of the the resources that they have that are like, I would say like human resources, um, I felt uh, a little bit jealous just as, as a product of American public schools. Um, you know, their, their public school system is, um, you know, everybody gets the same education up until I think age 15. And from there, you're kind of routed based on what your interests are, what your, um, you know, and of course, this is I'm reporting what what they were telling us, but, um, you know, you're routed based on what your teachers have noticed in you as a student over your years of schooling, and um, what it seems like your skills are. Um, and then you're kind of guided along these paths and are able to pursue education basically as far as you would like to. So at the clinic that we went to, um, one of the people who spoke to us, she is a general practitioner and an optometrist and has a degree in healthcare administration because she continued wanting to expand her skills and knowledge. Um, and that was, that option was given to her, which it just felt like a, a system in which specifically children are treated as a resource and something that needs to be um, cultivated and, and adopted kind of by the people as um, uh, some, like a group of people that need to be protected. And, you know, coming back to the United States, like first thing off the plane, um, I was at a restaurant and there was like a baby just like with an iPad playing like Coco Melon on a loop. And I was like, oh no, like we are really, um, we're doing ourselves a disservice by abdicating responsibility um, for young people. And I was just really impressed by children in Cuba play they we saw them outside we saw them doing algebra uh, in the second grade classroom that we went to um another thing that i just wanted to point out that i think maria didn't really touch on but i think was really interesting for our delegation was um we did meet briefly with the one of the higher ups in the the ctc uh the big union in cuba and i think our members were uh, very kind of um uh confused by the different ways in which workers relate to their union um, and their employers in Cuba. And this is something that we also talked to uh, the members of the Latiza blog about, and maybe I'll circle back around to that later. Um, but one of our members uh, of our delegation asked, like, so what happens when workers go on strike? And the official was basically like, there hasn't been a strike here in 50 years. It's just not part of what we do. Um, which I think was very, <laughs> like a lot of our people were like, what do you mean you don't strike? But when, you know, it's like you are part of this uh, union system that is almost, I think, like bureaucratized to the point of, you know, there's a system for everything. Um, and also they are kind of the boss of your boss. It's just a completely different environment to be um, a unionized worker under. And I think there's probably, you know, some really good things about having those um, you know, systems that are kind of top to bottom, wall to wall. Um, but it also means that some of the the opportunities for workers to, um, you know, express their needs, express their pain um, is very different. Um, and when we asked the members of Latiza, so like, what do people do instead? Um, they expressed that people respond by just not doing their jobs it's very hard to get fired in Cuba um and and as Maria mentioned some of them respond by leaving the island entirely um and I think that that is a a dynamic that is really interesting to examine from our perspective as you know Americans that are part of a, a labor movement that's very much um in motion 
right now. Um, and then uh, another thing that I just kind of wanted uh, to touch on briefly in terms of the healthcare system was the the focus on prevention um, that we saw that I think, you know, again, Maria did a great job talking about the the limitations and the shortages. Uh, I didn't go to the hospital. Another group of people did and said that they visited a dialysis clinic in which they were forced to reuse like filters that are supposed to be single use because they simply don't have access to this like essential uh, medical equipment. Um, but the focus on preventative medicine rather than having this kind of like, you know, waiting until problems become so serious that there needs to be some sort of extreme intervention and then spending in incredibly large amounts of money um, on issues uh, was something that I think as as a person who works in healthcare, um, it was incredibly refreshing to see that, you know, these ideas that I think a lot of us have had for like, well, wouldn't it be great if you just had a doctor and you knew your doctor and you went to the same person and were able to build a relationship. And then, you know, if you need greater care, you can get kind of slowly escalated up this system of care. Um, seeing that in practice was incredible. And it, that made it all the more heartbreaking to see that the, the system, I think, is under an incredible amount of strain due to the embargo. Um, and I think something that we should try to touch on more as we continue the conversation is that I think definitely the most essential thing to happen um, in the near future is to lift the embargo, but also the the way in which that's executed um, will have um, serious ramifications for, for the people and for the project. And um, we shouldn't just treat like, you know, uh, our American system entering in as a, a, a pure positive. Um, Thank you. Um, um, maybe Sarah, I put the next question to you first. Um, uh, so you've met in this in this uh, uh, in, as a part of the delegation with Cuban officials, and also you met activists from an oppositional left to the Cuban government. What's your take about the project to build a society beyond capitalism on the island, uh, and um, um, what's what's the prospect you see for developing socialism on Cuba? What are also your what did the left oppositional people talk about? What's their vision? Um, yeah, what's your summary of that? Yeah, well, I want to start by saying, I think something that our delegation was very thoughtful about that I, I thought was a, a mostly good thing was I think everybody was very careful to be respectful and not come in with a kind of like chauvinistic, uh, we're pointing out all the things that you're doing wrong and like this isn't perfect socialism, you know, why why aren't you doing xyz why isn't all of this better um which i think was was very good um a conversation that i had with a comrade last night that um i thought was really interesting uh, he was talking about the the venezuelan process and how um there's kind of a a term in in venezuela i think it's called like proceso uh which refers to the fact that like the the socialist project is kind of something that is always ongoing and, and a, you know, an iterative process that people are all kind of um, expected to to add to and contribute to. And I think that when, when we spoke to left critics, um, many of whom were, you know, members of the Cuban Communist Party, um, something that seemed to be part of their critique was that um, because there is this, um, you know, focus on defending the revolution, um, there can be a little bit of a 
it almost sends a message to people that it's like, this is a thing that was already made and already put into place. Um, and it's our job to, um, you know, to defend it. Um, but less so is it our job to like, you know, invent new things. And and the Latiza Collective specifically, um, I had read a piece that they wrote, um, which was called, I think, like, we need to return to the future, um, which was talking about the ways in which under Fidel, uh, the, the Cuban Communist Party had been very kind of uh, creative and and flexible, and and they were urging kind of a return to this um, more uh, proactive and less defensive posture um, of the party. Uh, I will say that for the most part, it felt to me like a, a lot of the issues that we were running into, including you know some of the aftermaths of the uh, the major protests that happened in summer of 2021. Um, are very directly connected um, to the blockade and its effects. Um, I think I, I really commend Maria, and I'm sure she'll talk about this more, for um, really taking a stand over the the treatment of people who were arrested during those protests um, and not uh, letting the, the Communist Party off the hook um, for, for the ways in which I think they were maybe um, not living up to their val their values and our, and our values in terms of uh the treatment of those people um but a lot of the um the critiques that we saw were not so much like oh you know we've got to throw these people out although it sounds like there is increasing numbers of people just you know regular cubans who are increasingly critical um of the government um i i was <laughs> the the critiques that we saw from um these left critics were all like incredibly nuanced and a lot of them that were most interesting to me were kind of focused on uh one one member of Latiza said it feels to a certain extent like our government is trying to maintain socialist distribution but is kind of giving up on socialist production um which i think rang true based on what we saw in the country, which was, as as I think Maria referred to, um, you know, this growing kind of like tourist industry um, in which you can make significantly more money if you cater to, um, you know, to visitors, to people who are trying to eat at restaurants, go on tours, buy tchotchkes, that sort of thing. Um, and that does, I think, uh, have have a risk of really um recreating a lot of the inequalities that we experience and almost don't even notice um living in the United States um but that is is something that's part of what made being in Cuba um so refreshing and made people on our delegation um say things like oh I felt like I could like sleep better and and breathe better there um and and that's that's very much worth protecting. I do just want to say, um, I, for the most part, was very impressed by um, the presentations that we got from different parts of um, the Communist Party, especially when it came to uh, the COVID vaccine um, and uh, their their efforts to combat climate change. Um, but uh, I think that 
being able to kind of have our our days full of um, these kind of official presentations and then um, after hours meeting um, with people that I hope Maria will will speak more in depth about because I think I'm almost out of time um, was incredibly important and uh, Maria deserves a lot of credit for doing the legwork of making sure that happened because had it not I think we might have not really gotten the full picture um, of of what living in Cuba today is. Um, there was one person that we met with who said, you know, if if we had medicine, food, and water, Cuba would be paradise, which I think speaks to what the kind of like root causes of um, a lot of the social unrest um, has been, um, which is like, you need, you need medicine, you need to have consistent access to water um, and food. And so that's why, you know, there's many questions that um, will still need to be answered, but um, the blockade kind of keeps any of those debates from really being able to um, to happen in the right way. I think that's, that's what I got. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sarah. Yeah, Maria, please come in on that question as well. Let me, hold up, we'll be set my seven minutes. Got it. Uh, yeah, so I would say uh, Sarah touched on a few points that I wanted to raise. Particularly, I'm a little, I'm like uh, a little angry that you were able to get to that awesome quote about if the revolution is like a project or an inheritance before I could. Uh, but you know, uh, I do think that is a very uh, that that is like a very relevant theme, uh, particularly when it comes to dealing with like you know the Cuban uh, critical left. Um, I would say like a primary issue or one of the crises that I mentioned earlier uh, within like Cuban socialism is that I think there's a lack of legitimate, consistent, like regularized uh, avenues for worker control and dissent, uh, whether that be like, you know, in like political matters or like in their average, like, you know, in their like day to day economic uh, or in their day to day like lives, like, you know, as workers. Um, and when I say like, you know, dissent, I'm of course referring to like even within the critical left, within the socialist project, people's ability to like, you know, very consistently like, uh, I don't know, uh, to, to help to like, contribute to the construction of socialism as opposed to simply defending it. Um, and within the critical left that we met with or within the, you know, various people that we met with, there was a significant amount of diversity. I don't want to uh, portray this as like a kind of uniform block of people. And I don't even think all of them would describe themselves as even oppositional. Uh, so, for instance, you know, we had a chance to speak with uh, Michael Vivero, who's an independent journalist and LGBTQ uh, activist. He would describe himself as, as a socialist, and he took a sort of very critical stance on the Cuban government. Uh, we had the chance to speak with members of Latisa Collective, which is an independent, or they wouldn't even say, they would say autonomous voice, and one that is like, has its criticisms, but they describe their project as happening within the revolution. And like, you know, that they are like members of the Communist Party. I also didn't have the chance to meet with, but I have spoke with uh, Frank Garcia Hernandez, who's, you know, a prominent like uh, Cuban Marxist and Trotskyist uh, writer uh, who is like very like uh, much more critical. And they've all experienced kind of different levels of response. So Latisa has been mostly okay and mostly not kind of toes the line, I think, of like, what they're able to do and not. Um, and like, you know, whereas Michael and Frank were both like arrested for participating in the 2021 uh, protests in Cuba. Uh, so that there's a lot of diversity on this left. In terms of general themes, all of them agree that the US embargo is like the 
primary impediments on the island's economic, social, or political uh, uh, growth or advancement. Um, basically, all of them seem to agree that uh, there is like, you know, um, that like they're not calling for an immediate overthrow of the Cuban government or of the Communist Party, because as it currently stands, the critical left is fairly small and marginal. And the most ready oppositional forces in the country are the right reactionary ones, which receive U.S. funding and backing from the U.S., whereas, you know, like um, the critical left does not. Uh, and, and, you know, there are like different, I guess, differences in terms of just like the level of criticism of uh, the Cuban government and also like their degree of like, um, or like how they analyze it. Uh, within the Cuban system itself, um, I would say, I would describe it as like being a system where uh, the government has the ability to consult and respond to public opinion. And I think has been to its credit more dynamic in doing so than many other, you know, socialist or, you know, like state socialist uh, countries. Um, but, uh, there isn't really like a regularized, like consistent way to express dissent or like get your views to be known in the country. Like, you know, people, for instance, like during the, uh, during our like days in Cuba, you know, we uh, heard about the system they have in like the National Assembly, how they have a legislature, which there are elections for, which, you know, in theory sounds great, but it's like, there's one candidate per seat uh, in the, for the National Assembly, they get approved by a candidacy commission, they need to get 50% approval at the polls to be elected, and one of them has never lost a race, uh, like ever. Um, at the local level, you're able, like municipal and provincial elections, I believe you're able to have like multiple candidates uh, for the same seats, but even then, like, you know, parties organizations and like critical points of view can't like organize, can't have rallies, organizations, flyers, you know, like can't can't like organize in a way to actually contest uh, those elections in a very systemic way, meaning that effectively that also ends up being dominated by the sort of dominant views within the Communist Party of Cuba. Um, and, you know, that I, of course, believe that, you know, a socialist state uh, needs to be able to you know, defend the gains or, a, you know, any revolutionary project needs to be able to defend its gains um, against re very real reactionary pressures. But, you know, to be able to have like a workers democracy, at least within the socialist project, there needs to be some level of conversation and debate outside the top rungs of society. And I, I don't have time to get into every part, but I will just uh, describe one story that we had, you know, at the uh, National Assembly, where I uh, had a chance to ask a question to uh, one of the deputies. So we were at the National Assembly for People's Power, which is the Cuban Parliament, and we were speaking to, you know, one of uh, a Cuban deputy or member of Parliament, uh, who was, you know, um, discussing like their government's functions and their 2019 constitution. And I had the chance to ask a question, a challenging question about uh, the 2021 protests. And I said, you know, in 2021, there were mass protests across the whole island of Cuba. This is like my quote. While it is true that many on the far right supported these protests and Washington cheered it on, the protests also involved thousands of ordinary Cubans, workers, feminists, socialists, and members of the Communist Party even. Uh, many participants from 2021 remain in prison today. How should Cubans who support the revolution but have criticisms of the government uh, make their voices heard? And the deputy's response, I think, uh, you know, I think demonstrated that there really isn't a very consistent answer to that question. He, of course, spent the majority of his answer talking about the U.S. embargo, like triggering the conditions which brought about the protests, which, of course, is a fair point. But, you know, 
spent a lot of time on that part. Uh, and, you know, he basically kind of moved on to say that the people that were being prosecuted weren't being prosecuted like for their ideas, but for, or they persecuted, weren't being persecuted for their ideas, but for their actions. And basically saying that these people, you know, were, uh, you know, committing vandalism, destruction of property, and generally like, you know, robbing and, and generally like, you know, just kind of they had it coming. That's, oh, I see my timer came up. I'll, I'll wrap up here. That is true of a, of like a section of these, you know, protesters. And I wouldn't go far so far as to say like, you know, every, release every single uh, prisoner or what have you. But it's also not true for a significant number uh, of the people that participated in those protests. A lot of the people, uh, you know, that are uh, still imprisoned since those protests. Um, and, and like, even outside of that context, he didn't really have, I think, a good answer to what's proper avenues for dissent or proper avenues for criticism and ideas really <clears throat> uh, really looks like. Uh, so yeah, I'll end it there. Thanks a lot, Maria. And I would put the next and last question before we open it up for questions and comments to you, Maria, first, and then to Sarah. Uh, so this was a multi-tenancy delegation from DSA. There were 44 people there. What were the dynamics in the delegation? What were the discussions? What um, um, uh, what does this say about DSA international politics and how should this be developed, our approach um, uh, to international questions? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, as you mentioned, this is a you know multi-tenancy delegation and it's one where basically every uh, major caucus in DSA was represented. There was a handful of people from almost everyone that I could name, people from every region of the country, members of the NPC, socialist ele uh, electeds, and I would say generally that, you know, the multi-tenancy nature of the delegation, at least in terms of like what we were able to talk about, what we, you know, um, you know, like the, the views that we would put forward, that that uh, multi-tenancy nature was like respected, I think, you know, for instance, in asking my critical questions or organizing meetings with like uh, critical leftists, uh, I never felt uh, at all, you know, like impeded uh, from that path that was, you know, even encouraged, uh, you know, to just like do uh, things that I would like to do, you know, by organizers of the delegation. Uh, and I, I never really particularly felt like a any like, you know, formal uh, pressure like towards one particular uh, view here. And I think within the delegation, there's a lot of diversity of thought and a lot of diversity of reactions to, uh, you know, uh, what we were hearing. There were people that were broadly supportive, but like, you know, had some criticisms and were wanting to hear more of a critical perspective. There were also people that, you know, uh, generally speaking, I think like kind of like fully backed or fully uh, uh, accepted, uh, you know, just sort of the like the line we we're receiving from uh, the Communist Party officials that we'd speak to and, you know, were uh, less critical in my view. Um, and, you know, the, and uh, there was also like just um, a lot of people kind of in between those different views. And of course, people like myself that were, you know, the cranks who were critical the whole time. Uh, just just kidding, of course. But, you know, like the, the idea that we, you know, were more actively putting forward that, that point of view. However, though, while I do think that this uh, multi-tenancy nature was like respected, um, at least in terms of like what we could say, in our limited time and with like, you know, our limited capacity, there are still political decisions that get made uh, in just how you structure the delegation. And I do think that they're indicative of some aspects of DSA's international approach that I'm critical of. 
Um, and I think it's kind of rooted in the idea of like when we're on these delegations, are we going primarily as diplomats or as organizers? Um, those things aren't necessarily fully mutually exclusive, but I do think that you have to emphasize one over the other in your limited amount of time. And in my view, I think we chose the role during this delegation uh, of being diplomats. I think that was indicative or that was indicated like in our, uh, you know, uh, statements that we made, uh, like or that DSA made publicly, the idea that we're emphasizing, you know, uh, nor like modeling, uh, modeling normalized relations uh, that, uh, you know, we uh, like kind of prim primarily emphasize like the unifying message of ending the embargo uh, in our messaging as like the kind of main thing that we're talking about. Uh, and of course, I, you know, support normalizing relations with Cuba. I also think that ending the embargo should be a primary uh, goal uh, of our, you know, organizing here. Uh, and I think it is the main thing that we need to do as U.S. socialists to aid the, the, the project in Cuba. Um, but I also think that the current role that we've uh, taken is maybe a bit too passive. Um, you know, in the delegation, a lot of our meetings were kind of took the form of being like lectures or like, you know, presentations that we'd receive like from various officials and like you know, um, institutions that we would meet with. We'd have an opportunity for some Q&A and then we'd kind of move on to the next one. And it was a lot of it was kind of very like didactic and us like receiving a lot of information, information from one you know kind of particular like official line and kind of like moving on through the day and like continuing to, um, I guess, like accept that. And I think that the official line of the Cuban Communist Party is one that we should hear. It's one that we should be exposed to. Um, I also think though, that in order to get a full understanding of Cuba's socialist project, I think that we need more than that uh, to really be engaged and not in a abstract academic sense, but in the sense that like if we're if our socialist projects are dependent on each other, like our successes are dependent on each other, then we should be invested in each other's uh, successes. We should be invested and engaged with trying to understand the full complexities uh, uh, of like the crises that are faced in this political system. Um, I think we should be aware of the internal debates that go on within the Cuban socialist project uh, and actively seek to learn from each other's successes and failures to be able to collaborate and strategize, to be able to give and receive uh, criticism where it's necessary. Um, and I think that, in my view, I think that requires a bit more of a dynamic engagement with uh, the Cuban Communist Party and with you know ruling left or dominant left parties anywhere that we go. Uh, and that I think that also requires meeting with and hearing independent and critical left voices that can offer an opposing viewpoint and help us advance our understanding. Again, not in an abstract sense, but to actually help us learn from and implement these lessons from the revolution and also to aid our ability to like, you know, uh, organize against the embargo in the US. Let me see, uh, how much time do I have left? Ah, damn, there's a bunch of examples I wish I could go into. Um, like, you know, uh, I'll just say, like, there was one, um, like, one thing that kind of came up throughout the delegation is that whenever we would ask or anyone would ask a kind of direct question of what advice would you give to U.S. socialists, uh, you know, as we're organizing, oftentimes any, you know, person who was, like, officially, like, you know, uh, with the party or, uh, you know, who worked in the state, they would kind of like give us a bit of a non-answer to any of those questions or kind of avoid giving any advice regarding like, you know, the social, our socialist project. And 
people on the delegation, I don't think we ever got an official answer as to why but people on the delegation speculated that this is because, you know, if they were to do so, it would be like an international incidence or, you know, that it would be like, you know, not, uh, it, it would be a bad look for them to be caught, you know, giving us advice. Um, I think that's a fair enough concern, but then that also kind of raises the idea of like, but then what is it that we want to get out of the delegation? What is it that we want to learn that's different? Because I don't think it's just a matter of learning that the embargo is bad and getting a chance to see it up close because that, while it's valuable, I think that we have that information and we we generally all agree with those points. But I think it's also that we need to like come away with like, you know, sort of, oops, there's my timer, uh, come away with like some more constructive um, lessons that we could actually implement uh, and like, you know, and I think that includes a critical view, but still, you know, ultimately a supportive one. Um, yeah, I'll end it off there. Thanks a lot, so Sarah. Please wrap us up for this first block before we go to questions and uh, comments. What's, what's your take on the dynamics in the delegation and what's your take on DSA's international work? Yeah, well, to start off, I just wanted to respond to a few things that that Maria brought up. Um, first, kind of the the feeling of it being more of a a diplomatic uh, visit than an organizational one. And I, I think that that's fair. I also think that one of the things that felt that I felt on the trip was very much that we were guests of the Communist Party. And I think that that kind of vibe um, informed the way that everybody kind of acted. I also think that there were 44 of us. And I think had it been a smaller delegation, there might have been more dynamism, more back and forth. But when you have 44 people that you're herding around a city and uh, trying to give, uh, you know, a, a ton of context to because I think another feature of our delegation was there was a huge mix of um, levels of understanding of just kind of the basics of the Cuban project um, that they had to kind of cater to. Um, so I think that, you know, this feeling of we are being shown around um, by this government uh, kind of influenced the way people engaged. Um, and I think that the the solution to that is not that, um, you know, oh, this there were problems with the way this was organized, but I think it just means that all of us should probably plan an additional visit um, with a, a different focus and and more time for for one on one conversations because when we did have the opportunity to engage you know either in small groups or uh, as we did with the the Latiza collective in a way that was able to be kind of like very back and forth more conversational um, I think that that was very beneficial and I do think that there were probably people in our delegation who were a little bit more high profile than uh, Maria and I that maybe during kind of some walk and talks or or during some of the downtime, we're able to have some of those more nuanced conversations with people than was possible when we were doing a kind of like one to 44 person um, dialogue. Um, in terms of the dynamics of the people on the trip, like I said, and I don't count myself among one of the people that was like most informed. Um, I read like one book and watched a couple of documentaries um but it did definitely feel like there was kind of a range of some people who were very deeply involved in this work who had been before and were seeing people that they they knew and having conversations that were kind of continuous um and then people who were just excited to be there and um very kind of willing to take in things um at face value uh in terms of 
the vibes. This trip had better vibes than most DSA spaces I've ever been in. And I don't know to what extent that was because everybody was on their best behavior or, you know, it felt kind of like a a class field trip or something. Um, But I was incredibly relieved at just the the ability of everybody um, to, to get along with each other, to really feel like DSA is one team that are all kind of invested in the same stuff. And it made me very hopeful um, for the future. Uh, another thing that I kind of noticed on the trip and have also noticed afterwards is that it did feel like I was trying to have conversations with people, you know, on the bus or uh, in the the back row of different events that we went to, and people seemed a little bit hesitant to kind of engage critically. Um, but since we've returned to the United States, um, the people that I've talked to have been more willing to kind of have those more nuanced conversations, um, which makes me wonder whether they were just more aware than I was of who might be listening in on our conversations. Um, To that point, there were certain people um, that were um, critical on the trip who kind of described, you know, said, oh, you know, we have these minders that are with us all the time. Um, That wasn't really my perception. We did have members of the Communist Party on the bus with us basically all day. Um, But it didn't feel to me as if we were being like surveilled so much as we were being, um, you know, like I said, we are guests um, of the Communist Party. They are putting their best foot forward. They are showing us, um, you know, what they're, the the project that they are trying to execute. Um, And it's kind of understandable that that would, would cause it to be, formatted in the way that um, Maria mentioned, where it was like, you know, at times a little bit didactic. Um, and I think due to kind of the the fact that everything also was being translated um, was kind of like a, a very kind of mediated um, experience. Um, but I think that one of the goals, and I think, you know, were I a, a higher up in the Communist Party, one of my goals for this delegation would be that we want to show 44 American like socialist influencers, basically, um, you know, that Cuba is a project that they should feel um, invested in and connected to. And then they bring that back and tell all their friends. And then, you know, this is unfortunately, and this is something that I want to just touch on in my last minute, um, something that's become clear to me since I've been Cuba posting in the past week, um, is that we as Americans, I think, do hold this really um, inordinate amount of power um, in terms of like, you know, we have more ability to influence our government than even, you know, communist party members do in Cuba. Um, and also we are so as a whole populace um not especially informed and not especially engaged in some of these issues. So when I posted about the the vote at the UN about lifting the embargo, I got, um, you know, and if, if people don't know, the vote was everybody else in the world votes to lift the embargo, the United States and Israel vote to keep it in place. Um, I saw a huge outpouring of, of questions and concerns from people saying, how can the United States do this? Why do we have this kind of power? And so I think that um, a big part of our role, you know, as people that are invested in making the Cuban project, you know, the most um, successful and democratic that it can be um, is is helping educate our fellow countrymen just about 
you know, the similarities to, um, you know, to the situation in Gaza, in which, um, you know, we're basically, our, our government is sleepwalking into, like, through incredibly um, destructive and um, horrifying um, actions and, and are complicit in, um, you know, basically, like, ruining lives in other countries. And um, the only w- way that that will change is if uh, we start paying attention um, and do what we can to to kind of shift those dynamics. I think that's my time. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah. Thank you so much, Maria. Uh, I would open it up first more, uh, for questions. If you've got a question, uh, please raise your hand or um, uh, put it in the uh, sta- in the chat. Um, uh, we can also read out questions. We are recording this meeting. If you, with a question or with a comment later on, do not want to be recorded, uh, please let me know um, so that we don't publish that. Um, yeah. Any questions? Aiden. Uh, yeah, I, I was wondering, um, talked a bit about uh, the uh, how like elections work there and uh, like how candidates uh, like that there was just the one for a lot of those uh, for those spots. Um, did you get to learn anything about like how a little bit more about how that process internally works, like inside of the party? Thanks a lot. And maybe let's collect some questions. There is one question in the chat. Are there worker cooperatives in Cuba? Are there more questions? Robin, please go ahead. Uh, hi. Uh, my my question is, I'm sorry if the, maybe this was addressed uh, earlier in the thing. I was a bit late coming. Um, uh, my question is, uh, the I'd like to know a bit more about the TISA and sort of their approach to sort of being critical while also being sort of part of the movement being in the like 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 what i think that's in in like i'd like to learn more about like yeah with do they have like a you know stuff to read on about them or anything like that thanks thank you any other questions Sarah and Maria want to come back on those questions. Oh, Philip, let's bring Philip in before we give it back to Sarah and Maria. Yeah, just a question is, was there any, I'm just curious from your experience there, if the embargo is ended, which obviously I agree with what people are saying, that's a key thing to fight for, particularly for us in the US. But what did you have any assessment of what would happen if the embargo I think Sarah you meant you sort of pointed toward this a little bit I wonder if you could talk a little more what would be the impact if the embargo ended and would um you said you mentioned there would be some different scenarios I'd be curious to hear more about that and also did you get the sense that if the is that the main if the embargo ended would uh there would the Cuban socialist project be a wild success um or are there other problems in Cuba that need to be addressed 
Mm-hmm. Um, bef- before we get back into it, uh, I just want to know, could Aiden, would you be able to repeat part of your question or maybe do, does one of us remember your part? I was trying to write each one down or write down the notes, but I didn't get yours. Uh, yeah, I, I was wondering about like the internal process, if you guys learned anything about the internal process of picking uh, candidates uh, like inside of the um, Cuban Communist Party. Yeah, and Maria, I don't know if you, when we got the presentation on on how the kind of assembly is structured, it was very echoey. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so you might have been able to hear better than I could kind of the intricacies of that. The vibe that I got, though, is that, you know, there are people who become members of the, you know, the youth wing of the Communist Party um, very early on in their lives and kind of the you know, there's a, you can join the Communist Party anytime throughout your life, but there, there are people who kind of get in almost on the ground floor. And then, you know, you just kind of are one of the people in the room when some of these selections are are being made. But do, do you have a better sense than I do about how the kind of like official processes work? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say rel- somewhat, but uh, not fully. I mean, as far as I know, uh, you know, like the actual process of selecting candidates uh, goes to like candidacy commissions uh, that then, you know, like uh, they, they like, you know, will uh, put forward candidates for the different offices. Uh, and, you know, like so it does have to go through like an official process that doesn't really re- isn't really similar. It's like a primary and it's not just like anybody who runs. With that said, though, I like. You know, I don't have uh right, we didn't really get much information on like what the like specific uh selection process is or what that looks like internal to the Communist Party or internal to um you know these candidacy commissions. Um I could I could address some of the other uh questions though as well. Um so yeah, I would say on the point of uh Latisa, uh so you know, Latisa, they're like a collective that I believe was started in I think like 2017. Uh they're like an online uh, like, you know, a publication that write, they write on Medium. Uh, they write, like, you know, um, various, like, articles about, like, Cuban socialism and, you know, the international socialist movement. They would describe themselves as kind of autonomous from the party, but not independent of it, because they, like, you know, um, still, like, view themselves as members and people that are part of the Cuban socialist uh, project. Um, and, you know, so they would, like, uh, and, like, in total, there's about, like, I think, 12 to 13 members of their collective. So they're kind of like the biggest little group uh, on Cuba's critical left or like independent left um, that like, you know, that we encountered so far. Uh, they have like, you know, a, a niche audience they described it as, but they do have like an audience and they offer a very nuanced critique uh, of the Communist Party. Um, I would say in terms of like how they relate to like the states that in general there's something of I don't know of either a a somewhat softer uh they offer a somewhat softer critique I would say than uh for instance Michael or Frank Garcia Hernandez would uh the other people you know that I uh, have had contact with uh for instance they didn't participate in the uh, 2021 protests though they did write articles like you know that were some like at least partially critical of the government's uh, line on those protests. Uh, they, um, I don't know, I, I, w- I would say in general, they're somewhat like uh, careful with their words and they also uh, don't like, 
and they, they don't really engage in like much outward facing public uh organizing because they wouldn't really have that as an option like you know there's no like you know big latisa meetup that you're going to go to or a big rally they're going to have it, it's mostly like an online uh written publication and that seems to be the character of uh you know basically most of the critical left organizing that we uh that we came across um so that, that's kind of how i would summarize some of what was going there and then on Philip's point about like what would happen if the embargo was lifted, I would say it's definitely, I don't know, I just kind of describe it as like at that point, it's very much like a jump ball between like kind of all the different like, you know, uh, factions within the Communist Party and within like Cuban society, because unlike places like Vietnam and China, there has been like a much slower process of the introduction of private businesses. Private businesses and private property have only really legally been recognized since the pass passage of the 2019 constitution in Cuba. Um, and it's in part because internal parts like of Cuba's like party or of the bureaucracy have been like very uh, resistant, consciously resistant towards, you know, uh, what they could view as a capitalist restoration in Cuba. Whereas others are more like actively supportive of, uh, you know, um, of like uh, uh, a more market-based uh, idea uh, or more market-based economy. And so like those debates don't necessarily play out in public, but they are like very active. Um, with that said, though, I do think that in general, from what we heard, at, for instance, from the deputy foreign minister that we uh, met with during the delegation, that he seemed very eager about the possibility of or, you know, private capital being able to come into Cuba for understandable reasons, because their economy is in such a poor state right now. Um, but as a result, like, you know, I do think that once, if we can successfully lift the embargo or when we uh, successfully end the embargo, um, there will be a very like strong struggle within uh, Cuban society over what specifically that looks like and to what degree uh, working people actually have a voice and control over what uh, that process looks like. Um, and in my view, like, in ending it, we can help to empower the critical left sectors. We can empower, like, you know, people to actually have more room to navigate and to negotiate and to think of ways that they could improve their society. Uh, but I also think that it'll be important for us to like not view that process uncritically or just kind of like not recognize that there are wrong ways that it could happen. Because in my view, like it would be a step backwards if this resulted in like capitalism, you know, being able to reassert itself very strongly in Cuba. And I think that's an act of danger that the government needs to negotiate around. Yeah. And I think there's almost a, it's almost certain that there will be an increase in inequality, even with, if, if there's a rethawing kind of as, as what we saw under the Obama administration, where, you know, it wasn't that the embargo was lifted. It was just kind of like lightened a little bit. And even that resulted in, you know, a tourism industry kind of like growing um and you know when we went people preferred to get paid in american dollars which i think just speaks to how powerful even under the embargo um you know the american dollar has this um incredible power so i almost think what's more likely than like you know one day it's just like changes overnight is that there will be you know less political will to to hold the line on stuff related to the embargo uh in the united states and more pressure from other countries as we kind of enter a more like multipolar uh international period um 
and and I almost think that a kind of maybe gradual uh process is um might be preferable just in terms of giving structures time to adjust and avoiding a kind of like I don't know um what is it like uh shock treatment or <laughs> like a, a kind of um harsh switching of of systems um but it's also going to I think yeah really depend on the ability of the Cuban people and the Cuban government to um shock therapy thank you Robin um you know because I, I think one of the things that I noticed a lot um in Cuba is is how much of those systems depend on having a different like culture and a different understanding amongst people about how they relate to each other and and like it's it's almost like a values um issue and so often when when we were hearing about some of these different projects and I was thinking about like oh how would we implement that in the United States it was like well first of all we would have to completely change the way Americans think about how they relate to their government how they relate to each other how they relate to to public services I mean and it will be really interesting I think to to see um how resilient that kind of culture is Thanks a lot. Um, if uh, anyone wants to come in with a question or comment, please let me know, raise your hand, put it in the chat, uh, and I can call on you. There is an additional follow-up question in the chat uh, on terms of authoritarianism. Was there any talk about non-democratic elections and censorship, free speech, and such? Maybe you could elaborate on that. I, I would have a question. You mentioned that the uh, opposition, some of the opposition forces that you spoke to do not call um, uh, for, so to speak, regime change or bringing down the government or whatever. But what are they, their, their positions? Also, uh, 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 Latisa and uh, Sarah put the link to the blog, the medium.com blog from Latisa in the chat if you want to check this out. Um, what are their positions? What would need to change immediately? So, for example, this, these you, you talked about uh, that there are no strikes. Um, what is the position of opposition people about workers organizing, independent organizing, independent unions, the right to go on strike? Um, what about organizing parties and um, forces, even with a socialist program, but in, in criticism to the policies of the regime? How, how would this be expressed? But, um, and also the officials you spoke to, if, if you ask those questions, what would they argue? Um, why is there no independent working class organizing in a so-called worker state? And oh, yeah, the question of co-ops um, um, is also there. And Maria put it in the chat. Any other questions? Any other comments? Um, Just to kind of start, and I hope Maria will take over for me on the question of uh you know what kind of reforms are the um the critical left calling for something that struck me was that we were really talking to a lot of people who um you know were born into this political system and especially when it came to the the question of like why aren't more people going on strike it was almost like they were like what what is that why why would people do that like why it, it's a completely different like context um to grow up in um 
and oh yeah elizabeth do you i think you might have a, a take on this considering that um elizabeth who's in the chat actually attended the um the speech by cuban president um uh that we skipped um elizabeth are you able to to get on mic Oh no, too bad. Um, but I, I think there might have been he might have touched on some of that in in the speech that he gave that we missed. Um, but Elizabeth is bringing up that uh, yeah, Latiza are our party members. Um, one CTC member told us that strikes are protected but don't happen in practice, but it was mistranslated as demonstration is protected. Um, which was an interesting thing that uh, we we had a translator who <laughs> certain people in in our group felt was maybe taking some liberties in uh, how he translated certain things. Yeah, I can come in on the point. I would say uh, regarding the translation issue, uh, this got brought up during the delegation. Uh, I. I'm not sure if it makes a tremendous uh, difference in like that particular part of like the issue on strikes, just because like whether she said like demonstrations are prote are protected but don't happen or strikes, and I believe that this word she used in Spanish was like uh, the word for like strikes. As far as I can tell, I don't believe a protection for strikes appears in the 2019 Constitution, and in either way, it's still true that they don't like happen in Cuba. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not, but but that's that's a separate point though. Um, on the, uh, parts of, like, the two questions, uh, I, I could start with the one, like, the reforms that the critical left wants. I would say I heard, I've heard different things from the different sources that we spoke to. So, for instance, from, uh, Michael Vivero, uh, he basically argued that the vast majority of reforms that he might want, uh, are somewhat foreclosed upon during, like, you know, or, like, that they're basically, like, not very possible while the embargo remains in place because it's difficult to have a very dynamic system while it's currently being starved. But his immediate thoughts were, you know, like even before the end of the embargo, the things that he would advocate for are the release of political prisoners and greater freedom of association, uh, like the ability to, you know, like freely like protest and, and things like that. And, and, you know, like, you know, yeah, like freely associate. Um, that was like one point of view, not to say that I necessarily agree fully with that view. Like I'm, you know, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for the full release of all political prisoners. Um, but like, I mean, that was like one that he put forward. Uh, members of Latisa Collective brought up the idea that like they support, you know, working people having greater control uh, and like the way they put it is like popular control over um, the, uh, over like, the tourism industry and over like the greater presence of like uh, private markets in Cuba uh, and actually having a greater degree of like, uh, you know, um, a greater degree of like say uh, over that. Uh, and then I know also from like the Comunistas uh, group, uh, the one that Frank Garcia Hernandez is involved in, uh, that, you know, they've advocated for like, you know, uh, workers' democracy. Like they wish they, you know, they're like actually empowered. They want actually empowered like workers' councils making democratic decisions at the local level uh, in Cuba, uh, you know, like, without, uh, you know, without, like, 
um, imposing a particular like uh, party line or like really limiting uh, what people can advocate for. Um, and so, you know, like uh, there's different views generally uh, and different ideas for reforms that are put forward. But the common themes, I would say, are that people, I think, like want a greater democratic say for working people and particularly over the implementation of like, you know, uh, or the introduction of like private property and private industry in Cuba, uh, greater opportunities for like public dissent, I would say, or at least that was the case from Michael uh, and from Frank. Um, and like, uh, and that they want like significant reforms of uh, their existing system, but not necessarily like the end uh, of like, you know, um, of the government or the end of the Communist Party uh, are sort of the consistent themes. It's just kind of differences of like how drastic uh, the changes they want are. Um, regarding this kind of leads then into the talk of like, you know, was there any talk about non-democratic elections and censorship? I would say within the official itinerary, not really. Um, you know, like when we were at the National Assembly, when we spoke to, for instance, like, you know, various uh, officials like Mariela Castro, Generally speaking, the line is that, you know, Cuba is a socialist democracy. That is a different, you know, uh, model than U.S. liberal democracy, but it is still democracy. Uh, that is like, you know, and people do have the ability to make their voices heard. They have the ability to express their opinions fully. And like, you know, there's like a full uh, range of like democratic debate in the country. From everything that I can tell from the functioning of the government to everybody that I spoke to, uh, who's not officially in the delegation to like, I don't know, just what I've like, uh, basically all indicators seem that like, that isn't really the case. And that the vast majority of like, you know, Cubans and even like Cuban government supporters wouldn't necessarily describe it as a fully democratic system. I mean, you know, for instance, like with the elections, I mentioned how like there's never, there's been virtually no competition for the uh, national assembly elections, how at the local level, like it's, kind of impossible to like systematically organize four major changes in society or you know at, at the um at that level because like you can't really organize uh and there's even been instances of like you know the government like uh acting against or like actively trying to prevent like more critical uh or like dissident candidates from uh running for those elections uh in this case of course you know like i believe these weren't left dissidents but like you know just like more general like oppositionist to the governments. But either way though, that's more, my point in bringing that up is to say that like uh, the, the idea that this is a free system that anybody can plug into just isn't really the case. Um, and I think that that doesn't mean that we can't have a real debate over why that is or the way that the embargo has influenced that situation. Uh, you know, there's a very famous poem by, uh, you know, um, Eduardo Galliano uh, called Fidel where he talks about Cuba's system. And, you know, he says like, uh, you know, it's true that Fidel, like the, his enemies say that he was a king without a crown and that he confused uni uh, unity for unanimity. Uh, but it's also true that, you know, uh, Cuba, like the revolution is, um, has always like been punished and it amounted to what it could be under the circumstances instead of what it wanted to be. Like that is kind of like the more common justification, the more common argument for their system and why it needs to be that way. And I think that, um, I don't know, I think to have a more serious and grounded uh, approach to the, um, uh, to like these uh, debates and to our understanding and our positions on Cuban socialism, I think that we should have a more 
grounded view that starts from the acknowledgement that this is a very bureaucratic, top-down, and I would say undemocratic system. Uh, and from that point, stop, talk about like why that is and like, you know, what we would do to address it uh, versus like just kind of accepting point blank or repeating point blank the like party line uh, that I think is inaccurate and not accepted by most people. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my points. Thank you. Does anybody want to raise any other question or comment? Otherwise, there's uh, one question in the chat. Did folks talk about the 2022 family code referendum? So maybe we give this just to the round of sum ups. Um, uh, uh, to ask uh, Sarah, please address anything that you want to address from the previous question and discussions but what do you think what should change in cuba and then most importantly to sum this up this discussion what do you think that socialists globally and especially in the us should do to defend the achievement of the revolution in cuba and uh, um, support the project of uh, fighting towards socialism in cuba and beyond yeah i mean i think as Americans, it's probably more our lane to focus on what we can do and what the the global community can do. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, when we continue to have hopefully conversations with some of these people that we talked to on the trip, um, we can share our knowledge with them and encourage them to, to take whatever actions um, they believe make sense in their context. But um, I, I leave the trip feeling pretty hopeful about us ending the embargo, um, maybe not during a Joe Biden administration, um, but we are seeing some shifts in the United States that I think are relevant. Um, you know, I, I think Bob Menendez is probably uh, going to not have as much power and sway in the future as he has had in the past. Uh, we talked to um, a comrade from Florida. Uh, and when I referred to Florida as like, well, it's, you know, it's a swing state. So they have to pay attention to what Floridians think. She was like, stop calling Florida a swing state. It's a red state. And, you know, if the Democrats just give up on trying to, you know, get, get Florida, then, then maybe we can, um, stop having that have such a, an influence on, um, our political system. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of room for, you know, at, at the very least, um, a a thaw in the next few years that allows uh, more Americans to visit Cuba, which then I think will kind of lead to other um, effects of, of normalizing relations and um, hopefully, you know, the, the slow uh, lifting um, of the embargo. Um, in terms of Whitney's question about the family code. Um, it, we had a a very interesting uh, presentation on the family code. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting was um, Mariela Castro talking about how a lot of the roots of the, the policies that became, um, you know, kind of written into law in the family code, um, people have been having conversations about and and been interested in in instituting for for decades and it was just kind of a matter of um having those conversations with the people and, and bringing kind of public consensus to the point to, to to the same point that um some of these activists um you know like gay rights uh organizers and um trans rights organizers had been 
pushing for for a long time. Um, an interesting thing about the family code is that it was nowhere near like a 100% everybody's on board resounding victory. There was a pretty considerable um, amount of dissent, um, which I think is is going to be interesting in terms of um, implementing it. Um, but I also think that it's it, it should be a model for uh, our policy in terms of recognizing that families have a lot of different shapes and makeups um, and that can and should be respected um, under law. Uh, from what I saw, there wasn't, I, I didn't witness a ton of backlash, although I think we heard a little bit about, um, you know, churches and uh, other kind of um, pushback within Cuba um, against it uh, during the the referendum process. Um, but yeah, just to put my final thoughts out there, um, I think DSA is really well positioned um, to push for the end of the embargo. And there's been a lot of great conversations coming out of this trip about um, future trips that people can take um, and, and actions that we can do. Um, and so I, I think part of the point of this, uh, having a a delegation that had a lot of different people in it and a lot of different perspectives was um, it shows that there is kind of a consensus from a lot of different sides of DSA that no matter what we want for the future of Cuba and relations with the United States, um, lifting the embargo is the most actionable item that we can focus on. Um, and I'm excited to kind of continue pushing that work forward and having those conversations. Thanks a lot. Maria, same question to you. What would you like to see on Cuba and what's the job of socialists uh, internationally and especially in the US? How much uh, How much time do I uh, do I have? Maybe five minutes. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so I would say that, you know, um, I think there's broad agreement that our primary uh, task uh, in the US is to end the embargo, uh, full stop. Uh, you know, basically every other major debate that happens within Cuban society, uh, every other uh, uh, struggle that needs to be waged, uh, you know, like, it's very difficult to do that in a situation where your government and where your society is being starved. Uh, and you need to be able to, like, if we can end the embargo, I believe we give the country a lot more um, wiggle room in all aspects, uh, you know, politically especially, to be able to start, like, imagining what steps forward look like uh, for the Cuban Socialist Project and, and for their revolution. But I also think that as, you know, socialist, and in my case as, you know, a revolutionary Marxist, that I don't think that we can be fully aloof to the decisions and the debates that take place within Cuban society and within their projects. Because, uh, you know, if we understand that capitalism is a, a global system that is organized internationally and that defends its interests uh, vigorously, violently, and internationally, uh, then I think that uh, it's then like incumbent upon us to not just support each other or offer solidarity to each other, but to be actively invested and engaged with all of our successes and failures, uh, all of each other's successes and failures, and actively like, you know, uh, engaged in like even the internal debates that are going on. 
Um, I'll say, you know, I don't have the blueprint to quote unquote fix Cuba or what have you. Uh, I know at least, you know, to end the embargo, but like, you know, I don't want to come in and impose uh, a particular view. I, I definitely think that, I do think that when it comes down to the particulars, that is a decision that will be made within Cuban society. I I'd say in general, I think that it is imperative for the survival of the revolution that there be a greater democratic say for workers uh, and like, you know, for, for socialists and for people to feel like they have real ownership of the project as opposed to just defending an inheritance. Um, but in terms of what that specifically looks like, I can theorize, I can think, but in the end, I'm not there. And there's a lot that'll need to be decided. My view, though, is that I think that part of DSA's role should be trying to engage with both the official, you know, uh, the, the leaders of the party and members of the autonomous and independent critical left, uh, trying to gain as comprehensive an understanding of Cuban society and, and you know, and ideas as possible, uh, trying to give and receive criticism, ideas, you know, constructive uh, debates, uh, you know, and really try to be in uh, full conversation with our, uh, with our comrades in Cuba uh, and to kind of have, uh, you know, um, uh, and to mention like having, um, um, uh, pardon, I had one other point. A constructive debate, something. Oh, pardon, lost my train of thought really quick. Uh, and like to be able to like have our own organizing in the U.S. Uh, be uh, more, uh, have like a grounded analysis and like be, uh, you know, put forward our messaging in like, a, like an understandable and defensible way uh, that, you know, like working people can understand and so that we could like, you know, um, make the best case that we possibly can for the embargo and for, uh, for against the embargo and for socialism, uh, you know, um, it, even in a context like a place like Miami, where it's very difficult to do so. I also uh, got a text from uh, Tom uh, to remind me to mention this very important point, and, and thank you very much for doing so, uh, that another important thing that we're also organizing for, that while you know lending the embargo as a whole is the primary goal, another thing that is very much easier for the U.S. to do that we are actively, you know, that our administration is currently choosing not to is to take Cuba off the state sponsors of terrorism list. Uh, you know, we have Cuba on this list uh, when they don't sponsor terrorism. There is no reason for them to be on that list, uh, and as a result, it plays a significant role in scaring away. Uh, diplomatic um, relations with Cuba and any, you know, like investments in Cuba, even though we, of course, have our criticisms or our nuances about like private capital. It basically like um, is this great inhibitor uh, on Cuba that has only worsened the situation. Biden promised that he would be taking Cuba off of the list uh, and he has failed to do so so far. And so that I think is another like aspect, another thing that we want to push back on. So I see that I'm coming up on time. So I'll just uh, end off here. I think that a comprehensive approach uh, to uh, you know any uh, to ending the embargo and advancing the cause of socialism requires us to organize strongly against the embargo and against sanctions on Cuba to get Cuba off the state sponsors of terrorism list. But in doing so, I think that we need to have a critical analysis and to also be engaged with the uh, critical left and the party. Uh, so yeah, that's my view. Thanks so much. It was really great. Uh, uh, we heard from Sarah. Sarah Hurt is a member of the, uh, oh, no, sorry, she's a co-chair of DSA's National Labor Commission and a member of Brennan Roses. 
And we heard from Maria Transfar, who is uh, uh, a member of YDSA at Florida International University and Miami DSA. Also, Maria is a member of uh, our steering committee of the Reform and Revolution Caucus, a Marxist caucus in DSA. We organized this meeting to give people a chance to hear from this delegation. It was I think it was great that DSA set up this multi-tenancy delegation of 44 people. It was great that you two went there and gave us some insights and uh, reports there. We will post this on our website, reformandrevolution.org in audio and video to listen to it again or watch it or promote it and other people can see it uh, and get a bit of uh, insight on uh, what happened uh, to uh, with this delegation and the debates around it. And obviously this is a lively discussion of socialists in the US and much beyond socialists internationally about Cuba and the prospects for the Cuban revolution. Thank Thanks you so much. Being here. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, please uh, look out on our website and our emails, whatever, if you organize future meetings like this. Uh, thanks a lot.